Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. In response to the supply chain issue, the White House has scrambled to help ease the situation at the ports off the coast of California and avert a holiday shopping crisis. President Biden announced this week that the Port of Los Angeles will be open 24-7 and that major companies will also expand their working hours to help offload products. While this may help in the short term, supply chain issues are expected to last into next year. For more on all of this, we'll speak to Stephen Overly, global trade and economics reporter at Politico. The ports of Los Angeles, the port of Los Angeles announced today that it's going to be, begin operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This follows the port of Long Beach's commitment to 24-7 that it announced just weeks ago. By increasing the number of late night hours of operation and opening up for less crowded hours when the goods can move faster, today's announcement has the potential to be a game changer. I say potential because all of these goods won't move by themselves. We need major retailers who order the goods and the freight movers who take the goods from the ships to factories and to stores to step up as well. So what the Biden administration announced this week is, as you mentioned, the Port of L.A. is going to move toward 24-7 operations. And then they also got commitments from a handful of major retailers and shipping companies like UPS and FedEx and Walmart to also expand their operations, essentially spend more hours every day moving cargo from the ports into the country, you know, into warehouses and into stores. The goal here is really to try to alleviate some of this congestion at the ports that is causing dozens of ships to sit offshore waiting to unload products, things like electronics, furniture, children's toys, all sorts of gifts that you and I might want to buy going into the holiday season. And so they're really hoping to essentially get things moving and get things moving faster to try to avoid this kind of end of year crunch where you have a lot of people out looking to buy gifts and stores have empty shelves and they're not able to get the items that they want or need. Yeah, it's crazy to say, but it's just over 10 weeks until Christmas. And, you know, the Biden administration, this has been on their radar for some time. They set up a couple task forces and things like that have, that have kind of been started in June and August even to address some of this stuff. But it could be politically damaging for the administration if this doesn't get fixed economically. Obviously, you know, if people aren't buying stuff and these things don't, aren't moving, the effects on the economy could be pretty bad, too. That's right. You know, these supply chain problems really are multifaceted. Everything from computer chips that are necessary for our electronic devices to pharmaceuticals, you know, all of these different products have had shortages or have had issues getting shipped from Asia to the United States. And so the Biden administration has been dealing with different pieces of this problem. And they've, in recent days, been focusing their attention on the issue at the ports because it will be such a problem going into the holiday season. And it does present a political risk as well as an economic risk for the Biden administration. You know, the economy is still coming out of the coronavirus pandemic, and so they want to keep that momentum going. And they don't want to avoid sort of criticism, especially from Republicans, 
if people do have kind of a lackluster holiday season <laughs> right. because we have all of these container issues. Yeah, Joe Biden killed Christmas or something like that, you know, um, but you can totally see that kind of criticism coming if something like that happens. So a lot of people have said, you know, these immediate, you know, these actions that were just taken are going to help alleviate the problem in the short term, but longer term, what are we seeing there? And, and you know, beyond that too, um, you know, when we're talking about the infrastructure bill that they're working on right now to get passed, I guess there's improvements for ports and things like that. That could help, but unfortunately it won't help right now. That's right. I mean, uh, the reality is there are very few things that can be done right now to really alleviate this problem, especially because we're about 10 weeks till Christmas and the timeline to really get products into stores, you know, that, that, that problem would need to be solved quite quickly. As you said, in the long term, you know, these problems are not expected to go away, you know, and so there have been calls from the Biden administration and others to invest more heavily in the ports and freight rail and transportation systems to essentially make them more efficient and help accommodate this increase in products that people are buying. You know, but those those investments, as you said, are long term. You know, we still haven't seen Congress approve infrastructure funding yet. And even once that happens, these are multi-year projects. So and those long-term solutions are not something that's going to really help us this holiday season. Yeah, and a lot of those improvements are needed on the West Coast specifically, right? It's the clearest path from Asia where we get a ton of our stuff from. So the improvements uh, need probably need to be started there as well. And, and so what are other companies doing right now to get around this? You made mention how other large retailers that have the resources are chartering ships they're uh, you know sending truck drivers uh, to unload stuff and just start the process going i mean they're trying to work get some workarounds going as well that's right i think every major retailer is, is trying to figure out what they can do to kind of save their own christmas because as we all know you know this holiday shopping season for many retailers especially small retailers it's what makes or breaks their entire year and so, you know, they're quite desperate to make sure that product is in stores where people can buy it. So, you know, we've seen large retailers like Costco charter their own ships to try to bring products in more quickly. You know, we've seen shipping companies reroute away from West Coast ports because they are so log jammed. You know, we've seen folks try to lean more into air transportation but shipping right now is very expensive, and so there really is not some low-cost, easy fix for any of these retailers. You know, and the reality is the big retailers have more resources than some of the small ones. I was speaking with a small toy distributor in Florida that is sort of desperately trying to get Tonka trucks out of China in time for the holidays and just really isn't finding any any cost-effective option to do that. So all sorts of companies are, are really struggling with this. Well, we'll keep uh, monitoring all of this. Obviously, there's going to be a lot more talk as we get closer to the holidays. But for now, ports are open, working. Ex everybody's working extra hours just to help offload everything from those ships. Stephen Overly, global trade and economics reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This week, we also saw some confusion in Texas over vaccine mandates. Governor Greg Abbott just banned vaccine mandates for all entities in the state, including private businesses. This could pose a problem for many companies that contract with the federal government, since Biden has mandated that they do get vaccinated. Now, some companies are caught in the middle and could lose federal funding or run afoul of the new state law. For more on the fight over vaccine mandates, we'll speak to Mitchell Furman, economy reporter at the Texas Tribune. The federal 
order is also not just for companies with more than 100 employees. It's also for anyone who enters into contract work with the federal government, which means lots of companies in Texas, including American Airlines, Southwest Airlines, just dozens of companies uh, that if they want to do work with the federal government, they will have to prove that their employees are all vaccinated. So that's another piece of this. So, you know, the governor earlier this week announced that any entity will not be allowed to require vaccination for employees or customers. And, you know, there were no carve outs for those federal contractors that I mentioned. There were no carve outs for nursing homes, which were struggled big time during the pandemic with their residents and with their workforce. And the federal rule announced in August requires all nursing home employees to be vaccinated in order for their facilities to continue receiving Medicare and Medicaid funding. Those are critical pieces for those places. So it's a confusing moment in Texas. Unemployment lawyers are trying to sort this out as their clients fall into one or both or multiple buckets. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, the risk of losing that federal money, as you mentioned, is a huge deal on the ban that Governor Abbott signed. What's the punishment for violating that? The order that Abbott handed down says that entities can be fined up to $1,000. It is apparently that would be a one-time fine, but it was vague in the order and it is unclear who would actually be doing the enforcing of that? Would that be the state's attorney general? Would that be local district attorneys? We've asked Abbott's office for clarification on these and other other questions, but without clarification, we haven't heard back. So without right. clarification from them, it, you know, all we can do is kind of quote the order as written. In the most simplistic of terms, right, if you're risking losing federal money, you know, $1,000 on the Abbott side of things probably isn't so bad. But you're right. It's it's confusing and nobody wants to run afoul of anything anyways. Vaccination numbers in Texas isn't that good right now. I I guess about 51% of Texans are fully vaccinated. So, you know, they got a long way to go when uh, it comes to a lot of companies going like that. Going on with the Abbott law that he signed It basically lets you get out of these vaccine requirements for a number of different reasons. You know, you can say it's a medical reason. You can say uh, you can even say that uh, you've had COVID before and you don't have to get the vaccine because you're protected, even though, you know, experts really say that's not necessarily the case. You know, you have antibodies, but you're not necessarily protected against getting it again. Abbott basically expanded the exemptions that employees can use to get out of potentially, you know, getting uh, being required to to receive the vaccine from their employer. The order kind of contradicts itself on some fronts, and which is why some employment lawyers think that this will eventually be tied up in the courts. And one employment lawyer at Houston yesterday told me that he thinks this is unconstitutional and unenforceable. We'll see. The Abbott has asked the legislature, the state legislature, to kind of draft this into law. And, you know, we'll see if that also hits legal snags, if and when that does happen. It's, it's confusing because it can, contradicts itself. on, and, and, and so, therefore, it's kind of hard to make, like, definitive analysis of, of like, you know, who, because it, it, it puts employers in, tr- in tricky positions because it allows employees more options to fight back. Like you said, mm-hmm. companies 
could very big companies especially could take a one thousand dollar hit, no problem. But a larger issue is that they could be dealing with scores of employees who maybe previously didn't have the tools to fight back against getting a vaccine, you know, if, if they didn't want it to be required, they couldn't really do much about it. Now Abbott kind of gave them more cover. What's been the reaction to all this? Because, you know, uh, Governor Abbott prides himself on being pro-business. Texas, very pro-business, right? But, you know, this is a rule directly impacting things that they may want to do. And you mentioned Southwest and you, uh, not uh, and American Airlines. You know, they said they're still going to go through with their mandates. The, a prominent Texas economist in Waco, Ray Perryman, said in an email yesterday when I asked him about this, that this decision is unhelpful for the state economy as it recovers from you know the economic impacts of the pandemic. He kind of went into the hallmarks of capitalist economy is the ability of you know the private sector to make decisions without government intervention. And you know he he said how it's kind of difficult for him to see how forcing companies to do this is is a compelling public benefit. Mitchell Furman, economy reporter at the Texas Tribune. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Finally for this week, a spy story. A plot to sell nuclear submarine secrets to a foreign country has been thwarted by the FBI. A Navy nuclear engineer and his wife were both charged in the attempt. In one instance, Jonathan Toby, who had top secret clearance, conducted a dead drop where he placed an SD card with gigs of sensitive data inside a peanut butter sandwich for what he thought was an agent of a foreign country. For more on this espionage plot, we'll speak to Devlin Barrett, reporter at The Washington Post. Yeah, it's really an amazing case on a number of levels, not least of which for, you know, as you said, having a telltale peanut butter sandwich in it. Um, (laughs) Exactly. So essentially what happens, according to the court papers, is that a foreign government, we don't know which foreign country, that's an important detail in all this, receives a package from out of the blue in which someone offers to basically sell them secrets about U.S. nuclear submarine technology. That is a very valuable technology for a a fairly small number of countries in the world who would be interested in building their own nuclear subs. And so what happens that really creates the first, this case really starts with a twist. And the twist is that that foreign government decides, well, we're not going to pursue this. We're going to hand this package over to the Americans. And so what starts right out of the gate is that the Americans start investigating this person by pretending to be the foreign country. And the whole time that what we now know to be Jonathan and Diana Toby, uh, the whole time that they think they're allegedly talking with a foreign spy, they're actually talking with an undercover FBI agent. And part of what this is, uh, what we see, obviously, since they were working with the FBI, we have some emails and there's a lot of uh, interesting stuff going on in there. And there was a lot of trust built right away with money because they were paying Mm -hmm. Jonathan. So they were confirming the packages were delivered. They were confirming, yes, we do want this information. And then they even uh, got a signal from the embassy where this country, the country that he was trying to work with too. And that's amazing too, because what that suggests, we don't know for certain, but what that certainly suggests that not only did that foreign country hand over the package, It suggests that they were willing to do something like put a signal over their embassy for the Americans to give whoever these spies were the sort of signal that they needed to believe that this was all real. And obviously, 
as someone who's covered spy cases before, that's a really interesting feature of this case, that apparently a foreign government was willing to do that much to be helpful to the U.S. to catch these folks. Tell me about the money and the drops and the peanut butter sandwich, because that's how he was. Uh, yeah, you know, that, they were called dead wild. drops, I guess. And, and that, that's part. So it's a peanut butter sandwich, a Band-Aid wrapper, chewing gum package. This is how he was slipping the secrets through to them. This is part of why the FBI figured out who they were, right? Because what was happening was they arranged a series of dead drops. That's spy lingo for basically you hide something under a rock somewhere And then later on, your spy handler comes and picks it up. And that way, the people don't have to be in the same place. That's a measure of covert action, basically, in the the spy world. And so what happened was several times, the FBI says, Jonathan Tobey went and conducted a dead drop, leaving data cards hidden in these strange things, including half of a peanut butter sandwich, as well as a chewing gum package, as well as, you know, a a Band-Aid wrapper. And each time, basically, the FBI was secretly monitoring and watching and could tell that it was, according to the charging papers, Jonathan Toby who left it with his wife, in some instances, acting as a lookout. Yeah, it's so interesting. And, you know, he was working with the Navy, worked for the Navy until 2017. You know, he almost had this kind of romanticized idea about this whole thing. We don't know his true motivations and why it was going on, but even writes in these emails, one day when it's safe, perhaps two old friends will have a chance to stumble into each other (laughs) at a cafe and share a bottle of wine, laugh over stories of their shared experience. I mean, he was well into this. What kind of secrets was he spilling? The paperwork he was sharing was apparently all about the design, function, and specifications of the nuclear propulsion system for submarines. You know, obviously, this is a pretty expensive and complicated technology. It's one of the secrets that the government cares a lot about. There's actually not much of a market for this. You know, there aren't even that many countries who would try to build a nuclear-powered submarine. But obviously, that's information that the government dearly wants to protect. And that's part of the reason why this couple now faces up to life in prison if they're convicted. Some of these uh, stuff for these nuclear marine submarine reactors is uh, part of this new deal that we have with Australia, too. And I know that caused uh, some strife with France and everything. Now, this is me just saying there, could it possibly have been France? You know, they are still an ally of ours, and maybe they didn't want to run afoul of anything, so they shared that information. Right. We just don't know. I mean, France is definitely one of the countries that would at least theoretically have an interest in this kind of information. And we know that whatever country he was he was trying to sell it to is a country where they don't speak English. So that really narrows the list down. You know, you're talking about France, Russia, China. I mean, and to be honest, that's kind of it in terms of non-English speaking countries that have a, a real interest in this stuff. So those are the most likely yeah. suspects to be honest. But we really don't know. And it's fascinating to try to figure out what was everyone's different interests in bringing this about? Exactly. Because obviously someone, someone who was offered spy, essentially received an offer of spying, said, no, thank you. And not only no, thank you, will actually help the FBI catch right. the people making the offer. Well, a good spy story because it had a good outcome for us, at least. Devlin Barrett, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Oscar. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this 
was your daily dive weekend edition. 